Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast with the opinion that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host, Hannah Shah, and I'm joined by my colleague, Stephanie Lloyd, to discuss the week in politics. Now, against the backdrop of Brexit and the Tory leadership campaign, which we'll get to in a minute, it's easy to forget that it's been two years since the tragedy at Grenfell. Uh, Grenfell United, who, have an, who are an advocacy group formed to support the survivors of the tragedy, has been highlighting the failures of local and national authorities to ensure that tower blocks like Grenfell around the country are safe by projecting messages up on blocks around the country. Now, as of last month, just 13 of the 176 private residential blocks and 56 of the 158 social housing blocks which have the cladding have had it removed and replaced with cladding that's safe. And applications to a £200 million fund to help replace cladding on close to 100 private blocks where owners have refused to pay will not open in towards the end of the summer. So, Steph, why do you think people and the government have been so slow to act since the Grenfell tragedy? I mean, I think before we talk about any of that, I think the thing that uh, for me is worth remembering is that when we talk about this tragedy and we remember the kind of, I remember seeing the images, waking up in the morning and seeing the images of of the tower block on fire and the kind of how all-consuming it was in that kind of landscape. Mm. 72 people lost their lives that day and many, many, many more had their lives totally changed forever. And it's the kind of human impact of this that I think is so often forgotten and can be easily forgotten by policymakers or developers when it comes to what their responsibilities are and what they need to do with it. And, you know, as, as you kind of highlighted, like so little has happened mm. over the last two years and there was such an outpouring of grief and support from the entire kind of population of the UK in terms of just wanting to do something to help people that had been through one of the most horrific things that you could ever imagine politicians were on the scene trying to kind of you know be there for people and support and show that they care but actually you know what we've seen as you say is very very little um that has actually been done to fix this as you say the majority of privately owned tower blocks are still covered in that cladding that was made it so dangerous and, and made the fire spread so quickly um and, but also then you know that's leaving people in a hunt let's be clear on this 146 tower blocks in the UK still are wrapped in that cladding mm. and that's a privately owned you know and you've got oh nearly a hundred of social housing still haven't been fixed that is leaving hundreds of thousands of people mm. at risk from something like this happening again and it is a ticking time bomb just waiting to happen until until that happens so what's the reason for the delay on these things well there's probably a number of different reasons I think 
obviously, firstly, the inquiry was set up um, and Theresa May announced that the inquiry was going to be set up, the public inquiry, the day after it happened. So when she was in the when she was in Parliament, she made that speech that, that was going to happen. So there's two stages of that inquiry. The first is really focusing on how the blaze developed and how that situation happened. And the second was how did we get to a situation really where that that could have any of those circumstances could have happened. So that inquiry is still ongoing. Um, and the first phase of that isn't expected to report until the end of October. Um, and survivors will be giving their evidence to that inquiry from September. And I think the thing with the inquiry as well, sorry to cut in, is just that I know there was a lot at the time, and we don't have to get into sort of the media portrayal of this, but lots of the people who were at Grenfell felt like the inquiry or the process wouldn't be fair mm. or wouldn't be transparent. Mm. And I think with something like this, like that's part of the reason why it's taken so long to get off the ground is mm. because of a lack of trust between those communities and who they perceive as like their authority, their local council, who haven't been great on social issues at all up until this point either. Mm. I don't know whether you think that that had an impact. I think it almost certainly would have had an impact. And also, you know, inquiries like this do take time. That mm. is also just how it works. If you are going to really understand why this has happened and get a very thorough look and not a kind of, you know, immediate kind of response for that, these things do take time. And then it's looking like it will be next year when the inquiry in its full of both phases will be able to report back to the Prime Minister. Now, what needs to happen, I think, is almost, you know, is is more important. And I think as you as you kind of highlighted in your introduction there, Henna, you said about the kind of guerrilla marketing and the kind of mm. campaigning techniques that have been happening over the last week across London, Manchester and Newcastle. And for those of you that haven't seen it, definitely have a Google and look at, at how that works. Basically, these groups were projecting onto these buildings mm. who were still horrifically unsafe for people to live in, just being like two years on since Grenfell and this this uh, tower block still doesn't have sprinklers or this tower block is still mm. wrapped in the same cladding that Grenfell was. And it is, it is, it is an utterly horrific indictment of this government that two years later people are having to do that in order to try and make their case and to get people to remember. And I think part of that as well is one is it what it needed was money and political will to make this happen. And sadly what we've seen is a government over the last few years who have been utterly selfishly consumed and even more so now with themselves, with their own party, with their own internal disputes in terms of you know, Brexit and the kind of unraveling of that and how and what that impact that has on the Conservative Party. So for me, I think, you know, it has to be whoever the next Prime Minister is. I think we probably know, but we can go on to talk about that, as you say, mm. next. It, there has to be a way that this is the utter, this has to be a firm priority of the next government when that comes in and the next Prime Minister, because we are literally risking the lives of thousands of people across this country because we just aren't doing anything. And we could do it. There is nothing to say we couldn't do it. We have literally, you know, we became the biggest producer, like purchaser of fridges because we were so worried we wouldn't have the ability to buy medicines and store them because of something we're doing as a self-inflicted issue on our country. And what we are not doing is protecting some of, to be fair, the most vulnerable people in our society who can't afford to pick up sticks and move elsewhere and not live in somewhere that could be an ultimate death trap for them and their children because they have no other option. Mm. And it is an utter failure. We cannot sit there and say we're the fifth or sixth richest nation in the world 
and say that we just are going to write off these people and get them to play Russian roulette every night they go to sleep as to whether or not, you know, unlike those 72 people who tragically could never wake up again. And I think, you know, I think that for me is is what has to happen. It has to become a government priority. It has to become a political priority. And therefore the funding has to follow that. But my fear is that everything will continue to be so yeah. paralysed by Brexit that that won't happen. And I think just to add to that, I think housing as well, I'm sure we'll discuss later more broadly, um, we'll have Fermina Rahman from the Resolution Foundation who's done some work on poverty uh, on the podcast in a week's time or so, um, talking about housing more broadly and actually why there are these number of private landlords who feel that they can pass the costs on to their tenants who mm-hmm. already can't really afford to rent where they're living with their large families because the cost of housing has increased so greatly because we don't have enough housing stock and no one's doing anything about it. Mm. Um, but that is a broader problem that... We will come to at future podcasts, future podcasts. And we can park it as a government is parking it to talk about Brexit. <laughs> oh, this oh. is literally, the, <laughs> this is the problem with politics currently, but yes, um, let's go for it. Now, something else that would affect the most vulnerable in our society is obviously a no-deal Brexit. And there was a uh, big vote on Wednesday. Uh, there was a motion on opposition day table by Labour that was designed to give the opposition control of the order paper in about a fortnight's time, um, allowing us to bring a motion forward against no deal. Now, the Tories managed to vote it down with a majority of 11. Um, I think there's probably more than meets the eye there. Um, unlike with Cooper Letwin, you remember a couple of months ago where um, the Yvette Cooper, Oliver Letwin bill snuck through, I think, by one vote. Um, leadership candidates like Matt Hancock and Roy Stewart actually voted with the Prime Minister against the motion. But that, you know, as time goes on, as no deal gets closer and closer, that might change. And it's unclear that the loyalty by people like Hancock, Stewart, Dominic Grieve, Philip Hammond um, will continue under the new regime. Steph, what do you think this vote tells us about the Brexit arithmetic in the Commons? To be honest, I think it tells us everything. We, it just reinforces everything we already knew, right? Which is there is deadlock in Parliament. Mm. And no matter what happens currently, there is nothing we can do to be able to really break that deadlock. And that is the kind of reality of the situation. And it doesn't really, there are lots of things in play, but it's very difficult to see what is ever actually going to really change that arithmetic. Um, and lots of that will lie down to the kind of Tory backbenches and where they go in terms of their um, leadership contest. But the thing that scares me the most is, you know, the more we kind of go on, the more it looks like the chances of no deal are are highly likely. And I know that the People's Vote campaign announced yesterday um, that there was a march that's going to take place on the 12th of October. So they're doing a tour around cities, kind of length and breadth of the UK mm. um, over the summer, culminating in that march on the 12th of October to just say, you know, and I think it will, I think it will very likely be historic levels again in terms of people turning out to say, stop ignoring us and put it back to the people. Particularly if by that point, which I'm sort of scared that it will do, that it looks like we won't have a deal and on the 31st of October we'll be crashing out. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's a possibility. It is a huge possibility. And we're seeing, you know, one of the biggest footballs that people are kind of kicking about in terms of the Tory leadership campaign is, well, will you prorogue parliament? Because I'd prorogue parliament. Um, (laughs) And it's this kind of very odd situation of so many people who have come out and constantly said, 
we could never have a second referendum because it would be utterly undemocratic, willing to shut down our democratically elected parliament mm. in order to force something through that they don't want. I think the irony of that seems to be lost on large numbers of Tory MPs, which is, <laughs> which is slightly scary. But also the other thing that I keep hearing them say as well is they go, well, you know, if we haven't delivered Brexit by the time there's another election, we're going to have a lot, we're going to lose. So we're not going to have another election because we won't win it. Um, and if that is not people who are scared of democracy and scared of the electorate, who are utterly therefore scared to have either a general election or a second referendum, mm. I don't know what more proves the point really. And it is why I think the only way that this can be solved is going back to the people. But yeah, as it ticks on every day, the chances of no deal, if some of those in the Conservative Party keep putting their own jobs and their own seats before they put the country, uh, then I think that is a very scary scenario that we could find up in. Um, and speaking of Tory party jobs, we've had a couple more leadership campaign launches this week. Mm. Boris, the quiet man, Johnson, and Sajid, the sad, Javid, what did you think of them? So Sajid Javid's launch was, I think, better than a lot of people expected. That's not saying a lot. It's not saying a lot. This is a very low bar of which we're <laughs> operating on. But, you know, he had a really, you know, he did, he's basically running his campaign in the way that I think lots of people have wanted him to run his campaign, which is really talking about his backstory, where he came from, how he's not the kind of typical conservative in terms of his life story. Now, the one thing I think is the most valid life lesson for everybody to learn from this is you can still have a good video and still be a truly awful candidate. And I think <laughs> it's the one thing that I've seen people get really swept up in over the last couple of years, particularly kind of over here on the left, but also over in America, everyone's like, but these videos are so good. And I'm like, yes. And the man is both dangerous and an idiot. So, <laughs> you know, both of these things can all be true at the same time. So I think, you know, it was better. I was, I was surprised and horrendously disappointed in um, Ruth Davidson for introducing him, but you know, what am I ever to expect from Tories? Um, and obviously Boris Johnson finally actually spoke some words. Not um, many, but he did. Not many. And also then, I mean, the thing that worried me the most about that is the kind of Trumpian way of, of politics and how that's going over here, particularly mm. with Boris Johnson. You saw Beth Rigby from Sky News stand up and ask him about his previous comments towards Muslim women mm. and how they look like, you know, he was proclaiming previously, they look like letterboxes, you know, horrendously Islamophobic mm. language. And people, MPs started to boo her for challenging him. And then he was just like, well, you know, people just want politicians that will say things. And it's like, yes, what they don't necessarily want, though, is people that are just racist. Like, <laughs> those two things don't have to be the same. So, you know, I think they went quite well in comparison to some of the other ones. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, although the Johnson one did create the best headline I've seen of probably of the race so far which was his refusal to answer a question about cocaine use mm. um, and the mirror ran with snorty boy well indeed <laughs> which mm. was a fun day for the uh, mirror headline writers um, so obviously Johnson's widely tipped as a front runner and you can see him sort of splashed all over the telegraph pretty much shocking every day. I wonder why mm. I wonder why um, now we've just had sort of in our um, little podcast time capsule, uh, the first round of voting, mm. anyone and indeed everyone with fewer than 17 endorsements has been culled. What do you think of the shape of the race now? I mean, Boris kind of outstripped almost everybody's expectations in terms of that balance. We got 114 in the first round. Mm. I mean, this is only the first round. It goes through numerous iterations until they get down to two. Um, and that's when it then gets put to the country. But they now kind of go on like a hustings round now. 
um, in terms of how that works. And the next vote is going to be taking place on Tuesday. Um, but there's basically kind of three tiers of it. Well, four tiers, really. You've kind of got the first tier, which is Boris Johnson. And I mean, it is no guarantee, but it is almost certain that mm. he will probably end up on the ballot. Um, you've then got the kind of second tier of who can who can beat him. You've got Jeremy Hunt came second, then Michael Gove. Um, and you've then kind of got that third tier, which has got kind of Savage Javid, uh, Rory Stewart, uh, Dominic Raab, all mm. on the kind of like, you know, low 20s, early 20s in terms of their votes. And then you had those that dropped out. So Mark Harper, Esther McVeigh and uh, Andrew, Ledson. Andrew Ledson. That was it. So there are no more women in the no race. No women in the race. Hey, 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 who needs it to be the 21st century? <laughs> um, but it looks, so I think basically now it's going to be the interesting bit of who is going to be second, right? So I think basically almost everybody is now accepting it will probably be Boris Johnson. The only person that can kind of stop him is himself and his wonderful ways of gaffing everything up. But we're going to see the first debates on Sunday night on Channel 4. We don't know who's going to be taking part in that yet. Is Boris going to do it? Is he going to bottle it? Who knows? I don't really, I'm not really surprised if he wasn't to take part in it. Mm. Um, I think going to be like, who's going to be second between those ones? And I think probably quite likely, maybe Jeremy Hunt, but someone like Sajid Javid mm. could pull together and kind of move into that second tier in terms of pulling through. I think what's interesting about this is when you talk about the hustings and the top two candidates go not to the country country, but they go to Tory party members. Very different from most of the very country. Very different. There are, I think they've got about 200,000 members. Less right? than that. Less Isn't than that. that yeah. About 160. Um, and best estimate. Boris Johnson is very popular amongst them. And somehow mm -hmm. I doubt that him dropping some clangers on TV is going to make any difference. Yeah. Um, I think the one thing to watch out for is to see whether the sort of anyone but Boris camp can sort of, get their act together. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know who's running their whipping operation, but I think he's got Gavin Williamson running his. Mm. Um, and obviously, despite all the times we laugh at Williamson and his weird pet tarantula and his like... The fact well, he, he also to, knew what he was doing when he was a whip. He's a great whip, yeah. isn't he? And it was also, I mean, it was quite funny. You saw lots of the rumours come out that they were banned from taking their phones in because mm. the Boris Johnson camp were making, were saying you need to take a picture to prove that you voted for us because obviously the most duplicitous... Uh, voter kind of base in the entire world is Tory MPs. Mm. They will lie to your face all day, every mm. day. So it will be it will be very interesting to see what happens. I mean, I took some ultimate joy in the fact that Esther, I'm a massive bigot, McVeigh came last. That was quite nice. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, it's going to be a real heat up now in terms of who's going to be able to get that to that second place. But ultimately, will anybody be able to beat Boris when it comes to the Tory party membership? No evidence is saying that they can so far, but let's see what happens. We could we couldn't end up in a world where Jeremy Hunt wins. And then at the next election, you get to ask, would you like to vote for this white man, Jeremy, or this white man, Jeremy? Which I think shows just how wonderfully diverse our politics really is. Well, I think that's, that's lots of choice, to be honest. On that note, Jez or Jez... That's all we've got time for. And um, we won't be with you on Tuesday. We won't, sadly. Unfortunately. We're, we're allowing ourselves to actually have some time off for Ooh, once. We'll be relaxing. I'm excited. Mm. Um, we'll leave you in the capable hands of Stefan Rolnick of email fame. If you don't read his email, you really should. Until then, have a great weekend. Don't forget to share this podcast with your mates. Tweet it, gram it, write it on talk on the pavement. Uh, well, it is raining, but that's fine. Whatever floats your boat. Have a lovely weekend.
been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.